0: Welcome to another episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me with me Raymond Nakamura and myself Scott Owens and today we're podcasting from the tatami room at the Nikkei National Museum and we're going to be talking about strawberry farming Japanese Canadians involved in strawberry farming.
1: Yes, and we're gonna be focusing in particular on the Fraser Valley. Just to give you an estimate of what it was like, we have some stats about the peak of Japanese Canadian activity in the Fraser Valley in farming. So there were 561 families, a population of approximately 3,068 involved in farming, 8,806 acres, and there were approximately, and I'm not sure about the accuracy of this number, 104 farms, purchased by Japanese Canadians in the Fraser Valley between 1904 and 1938 and at its peak 80% of strawberries grown in the Fraser Valley was done by Japanese Canadians.
0: So when they got sent off, that made a big impact on the whole.
1: Yes, it did. Actually, just as an interesting side note, there's an article from the British Columbian in 1942 that was written about strawberry farming and how that there was a group or a person that was advocating that they should keep the Japanese berry growers because of the fact that they were so vital to the strawberry industry, Canada, as well as in British
0: Columbia. Here's a quote that I got from the, actually, the BC Security Commission report on the Fraser Valley after they had been taken away said to the Japanese in the Fraser Valley districts, each farm represented years of toil. The clearing and preparation of the soil entailed work comp- comparable to that of our great grandparents in Upper and Lower Canada. The Japanese farmer had worked willingly and unsparingly, his children helping him during the picking season. No agriculturalist in the length and breadth of the country could fail to view with dismay. The change a few months has wrought in the berry farms of this valley since the departure of the Japanese farmers." So that's interesting that, that, that they, they were acknowledging what a, what a difference it had made. So we can, we can get into this. We were mentioning the Fraser Valley, and within that there were certain areas in particular. There's Haney, Mabel Ridge, Within that, and and in Surrey, there's a place called Strawberry Hill, which is still called that today in an area of concentration there. And places like Mission, Abbotsford, Claiborne was another area where they had people. They were uh, set up, some of them were more concentrated than others. So like in the Strawberry Hill, they had a number of Japanese families right close together. In other cases, they were a little bit more dispersed.
1: One of the more well-documented pre-war strawberry farms was the Kawase Strawberry Farm, which was in Richmond, British Columbia.
0: Right. So with Richmond, a lot of them ended up... Going from being fishermen to moving into the the farming, the restrictions to fishing licenses, and they were in other areas as well on Vancouver Island, the Okanagan, possibly farming different areas. I know that my father's family they lived on Salt Spring Island and they grew strawberries there, and then I had aunts who were who lived in uh, around Kelowna and they were doing different kinds of farming. So, but the biggest concentration was in the Fraser Valley, so that's what we'll be looking at. You were mentioning. it was was before the war that this was taking place and you figure that to start a farm you at least need some capital and so they it was after about the 1900s that they started going in there in particular after 1907 when they had the anti-asian riots in in vancouver there were a lot of restrictions in different areas and it was growing from before then but more of them were moving into these places after they had been logged the first Issei mission was in 1904. His name was uh, Kumekichi Fujino. And then the Strawberry Hill area that I mentioned in Surrey around Scott and Newton, a number of Japanese families moved in around 1911. These other organizations that we'll be talking about later, the co-ops, the Nokai, started forming between the, the 1910s and 1920s in that, that time period when there were enough of them to, to make it make sense that they would organize. And one of the first
1: known farmers, well, he didn't own a farm, but he worked on a farm. He was a farmhand in Pitt Meadows, was a man, Kichi Iemoto, who, who moved there in 1904.
0: So it seems like there are some people who are owning them and then they'd also be hiring people as workers. My mother was speaking of a family friend that they would go and visit at a strawberry farm. Because they were working there. That was a growing thing. I I noticed that in California, they were just starting strawberry farming in a a large way around this time period too. So it seems like as an agricultural product, this was the time when strawberry farming in general was taking root.
1: I guess that covers a little bit of where
0: they farmed. Yeah, and the when. So we can move on to who was doing it.
1: I feel like this was a really interesting question. So one of the ways that we prepared for the podcast was just to ask some ourselves some basic questions that we were gonna go over to give a nice broad overview of the Fraser Valley. And as Raymond suggested, one of them was who farmed. And really, I think the short answer to this would be anyone who wanted to farm had the means to purchase a farm and the ability to farm it. Jiro Inoue, who's one of the first Japanese, Canadian strawberry farmers and is referred to sometimes as the founder of the strawberry industry in the Fraser Valley. He didn't have any background in farming when he immigrated to Canada and he had the means and so he right away bought a 20 acre farm. There were lots of associations that were referred to as Kai that would be representative of a certain region in Japan. And so one example was actually from Mankichi Iyamoto who I mentioned Earlier, and he was from Yamamuchi, Ken. As a farmhand, his employer actually inquired about other people that could work on farms. And he had recommended his other farmer friends, Mankichi Iamoto told a lot of people about work as a farmhand. He spoke mostly to people who were from Yamaguchi-ken.
0: That's interesting, because my dad's family is from Yamaguchi. My grandfather, he would have been farming in Port Hammond, also around Strawberry Hill, and in that area. And my grandmother came over as a picture bride and hadn't farmed before, but then lands in having to do this this kind of labor.
1: One of the really interesting things about this is the result of Mankichi Yamoto getting a bunch of people from Yamaguchi-ken to come and farm in and around the Port Hammond and Fraser Valley area was that the community was sizable enough that Nikkei referred to part of that area as Yamaguchi-mura.
0: That's interesting, I hadn't heard. So what area was that? So that was in and around Port Hammond yeah okay so yeah, yeah that, so. that was the first place that's so probably it turned out that my grandfather. No. unfortunately uh, the year after my grandmother had come over getting married their house burned down and they ended up moving somewhere else another thing about it is the idea that it wasn't just men who were working on the farm yeah. you had women and children my dad says when he was on salt spring his job was to carry the boxes smaller boxes he, he didn't do too much picking or else he would eat too much that was one of the complaints that some of the the white farmers had is that everybody's working and they could work so much faster yeah. some of the associations were actually trying to get the farmers to to either have the women not working in such conspicuous places <laughs> oh and the other thing was to not work on sundays as well yeah. to kind of make the the white farmers feel better about it
1: when haney no Kai was founded in 1919 part of the constitution of the organization one of their focuses was to actually improve relations with white farmers. And one of the ways that Jiro Inoue thought that that was a good idea was to try and go to the Japanese Canadian community and try and convince them to either stop working on Sunday or if if that wasn't something that was agreeable to them, that they would ask them to curtail certain activities like don't clear land with explosives, which were widely used to clear land on Sundays because that offends some of the other farmers. Don't be so obviously (laughs) working
0: hard, yeah. (laughs) That was an interesting thing, this ongoing negotiation within the communities. Speaking of women, this was an interesting quote. It sort of reminded me of how they say Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did except backwards and in heels. This is a passage from Kenadachi's book. The picture bride worked with pick and shovel with her husband when they cleared the bushland to plant strawberries, then hoeing and cultivating the very patches besides her household chores. She would get up very early in the morning and go to bed at 11 at night. Upon rising in the morning, she fed the chickens and the horse, then prepared breakfast, washed the dishes, followed the family to the field where she drove the horse behind a slope, the cultivator. She would return to the house shortly before dinner, prepare it, clean up, and then return to the field. During the berry-picking season, she picked the berries or packed them from dawn to dusk, taking very little time for household chores. After the busy season was over, some of the wives would work in the fruit cannery or hire out as domestic workers. These pioneers never dreamed of such a thing as a holiday with pay. They worked hard all year round and the children were also trained to work as soon as they were able.
1: Midge Aikawa's book, and I can't remember the particular person, has an interesting story about a Japanese-Canadian woman who essentially ran her farm in the Fraser Valley because at the time when people were establishing farms, a lot of them were ending up having to clear the land. And part of the reason actually that they were settling in the Fraser Valley was because that land wasn't cleared yet and it was undesirable to other farmers and so they could get it at cheaper prices. As a result of that, there were a lot of farmers who were involved in multiple professions and so they would say log during the logging season and come back and farm, but then In this particular farm and I believe this is an example of things that happen in other cases as well but the farm managed to operate all year round despite the fact that the husband would be doing seasonal work in logging or fishing and it was usually because the the wife or the family would continue to farm while the husband was away.
0: So what was the motivation for them to be farming to start off with? Maybe we can get into some of the specifics of that. Before we get on to that, I
1: wanted to mention Yogi Yosei. After an agreement starting in the 1920s that decreased the amount of Japanese that could immigrate to Canada, they developed an immigration system that essentially allowed Japanese to immigrate as long as they would work for a particular employer for three years. And then that employer was able to pay them lower wages. A lot of yobi yosei and Japanese immigrating after the 1920s ended up getting in farming because the Japanese Canadian farmers really relied on their work as farmhands and so they had the three year period in which they had to work for the particular family and then a lot of times they would either stay on or they would try and purchase a farm in their own because that would be the trade in Canada that they were most prepared to do.
0: That, That whole thing of the networks and people who are connected by prefectures and so on, it's interesting how that repeats itself in other industries. When, yeah. when we were dealing with fishing before, when I was working on the exhibit, that was also a very strong pattern of, of these connections. Why
1: did people get into farming? So, there were multiple reasons for going into farming and I have about three or four that I've gleaned from a couple of sources. In the Fraser Valley, one of the reasons was Jira Nui, as I mentioned before, who was referred to as the founder of the strawberry industry, He promoted farming in the Fraser Valley to the Japanese Canadian community as a way to make a good living and to have good quality of life. He was from Sagaken. Once his farm was established, he wrote multiple articles in Japanese Canadian newspapers that stated, among other things, under a solid 10 year plan, a net income of $10,000 would be made, which was quite a bit of money at that time. He was promoting it as a lifestyle as well as a way for Japanese Canadians to generate income. He bought his farm in 1906, shortly after that the next year there was the race riots yeah. Um, so there was a perception that in farming and away from the center of Vancouver that there was less prejudice against Japanese Canadians, especially prejudice that had started to move into fishing. Jiro thought and other Japanese Canadians, I think, thought that this would be aware that they could work and face less anti-Japanese Canadian sentiment. And this is actually partially evidenced by the fact that Japanese Canadian farmers ended up working with a lot of white Canadian farming groups, which wasn't as common in other industries. And there was a huge push on the part of Inoue and others to adapt to the customs and manners of their home country, which resulted in, as we had mentioned, efforts to curtail loud clearing activities on Sundays, and also efforts for Japanese Canadians, specifically in the Fraser Valley, to focus on having English kindergartens and Japanese Canadian immigrants and children learning to speak English to be able to communicate with the white farmers associations, which I'm sure was pushed in a lot of places to lesser or greater extent.
0: And the restrictions, uh, although it was more obvious after 1907, they weren't allowed to vote from the 1890s. So that meant that they couldn't get into other occupations in civil service or pharmaceutical, even if they were the Nisei who were born in Canada. It's also interesting to think symbolically of having land. You're committed to being in this place, which represents a transition from those who were intentionally working in fishing or logging where they would put in time, make their money, and go back to Japan. It it seems like if you're going into farming, that's more of a commitment to being in that place. So it seems like the motivation of them was a little bit different from some of the predecessors
1: speaking of voting though japanese canadians were not allowed to vote in a lot of other avenues the bodies that represented japanese canadians the cooperatives actually were allowed to vote on farming regulations that was one of the few areas in which they were allowed to have some sort of voting power as an organization as an organization yeah oh i see speaking of owning land uh, i think another one of the factors was when some immigrated during the Meiji Restoration Era in Japan which has appeared from 1868 to 1912. Land was very precious, and so I think that there might have been some of the lead into farming. Other books suggested was that they dreamed of owning land, and this was relatively affordable. They could make enough money to buy and own land. right.
0: there's the the idea that while well, they finished cutting down all the big trees, so now now there's this space, it's just that they've got these huge stumps in them. They were willing and able to work in the spaces between the stumps. So even before they had really cleared the field, it seems that strawberry farming in particular lent itself to this kind of approach where they could work small patches of land. And as farmers in Japan, they were kind of used to doing that. The kind of bent over labor intensive farming that strawberry apparently requires a lot of them seemed to be used to already. That seemed to be an actual advantage of them yeah. being smaller. They didn't Bending over wasn't as bad, no. I guess, was one of the things they said. This was a, a quote from a white farmer in Port Hammond commenting about this process. He says that, my mother sold 18 acres of wild land to a Japanese farmer some time ago. We thought that would never be of value for it was covered with bush and huge stumps having been logged over. And in addition, the soil did not seem very rich. Last winter, I went out to this farm to cut wood and found, to my surprise, that it was nearly all cleared and had been transformed into a highly productive berry farm. I found that this Japanese farmer, in eighteen months, had cleared four and a half acres, an area that would take the average white farmer three years to clear. So that's interesting. I don't know how true that is, but that's his quote and his perception of what was going on, the efforts that they were making.
1: That story, I think, was really common because the fact that Japanese Canadians, too, were willing to buy this land that essentially a lot of white farmers saw it as valueless and right. turned it into strawberry farms was one of the reasons that they could get into it because they could afford to buy the patches yes. of land that yes. people thought were useless.
0: Yeah, and the people selling it thought, well, that's funny. These people are, it's like selling swamp land or something. But yeah. They think they're getting a good deal and then they go, whoa, no, they're making their farms. And two,
1: there was a loan system that, that they developed in place similar to a mortgage where they could pay it off on a yearly basis, which again made it a little bit more attractive for Japanese Canadians. And the other thing that was actually interesting that I came across in my research is there was a huge idea around the quality of life provided by farming. There was actually a friend of Jiro Inoue who aspired to go into farming by Inoue as well as the writings of Tolstoy. Oh yeah. Um, the, Russian, the Russian writer Leo Tolstoy because there was a strong belief that this agrarian work would allow you to to have a really, really good quality of life, and I think that the way that Inoue and others sold it was that it would provide you with adequate free time and income, so it was something where you could stay in when it's raining and just go out to work and just so long as you were growing enough crops that everything would be fine which does not seem, based on other research, that that was actually the case. Mm. They needed to form mm. cooperatives and, and uh, other associations in order to make it so that their farming could be profitable, but I think that there was a, an idea about that.
0: Yeah. yeah, being connected to the land.
1: One of the other questions that we wanted to answer is how did they farm? Associations and cooperatives were a big part of farming and helping to ensure that farming would be profitable because there were many cases in which they had produced too many strawberries that had entered the market or they would deal with different suppliers. So really a lot of it is about working out the early kinks and kind of like supply and demand economics in the particular industry. If one farmer decides to sell his strawberries for less then the the suppliers will only pay that much or if they overproduce and they need to get rid of strawberries and so there's no regulation on how much people are growing or how much they're selling or things like that they ended up having to form associations and cooperatives in order to ensure that people would sell the appropriate amount of strawberries to keep the prices high enough so that they could continue to brew strawberries. And by selling, I mean that they would sell to the suppliers of strawberries. So they would sell to the shops or they would sell to canneries that would turn strawberries into strawberry
0: jam. It seems like there, there was a jam manufacturer right around Mission yeah. set up, and, and so they were directly going there as a starting point. Yeah. But this concern of overproduction initially was one of the complaints that white farmers had about the Japanese. Yeah. They're working so hard and they're lowering our prices, so that yeah, they had to figure out how to moderate that.
1: Yes, so a lot of the times there were in the different regions, there were associations of Japanese-Canadian farmers that would kind of serve to represent them and had different goals, so one of which was Hain no Kai that I mentioned previously, it was established to promote and develop the interests of farming by Japanese Canadians in Haney to work towards to improve their living standards in Haney and to better the relationship between Japanese Canadian and white farmers. There would be in a lot of cases associations like that. And then those associations would either be involved in other regional federations that would involve white farmers. So there was a Federation of Farmers of the Fraser Valley. I can't remember if this one was white or Japanese Canadian farmers or both. And then there was an actual cooperative, so this was the higher level that would actually work with supply and demand and would also work with developing regulations in conjunction with the government of British Columbia around strawberry farming so that they could protect that market.
0: There's that distinction between the fresh berries versus the ones that put into jams because in and of themselves the strawberries don't last that long There's sort of a narrow window the importance of having the distribution set up having an effective transportation system is especially critical
1: there's a two interesting stories around developing technologies for that the first was they developed refrigeration units for the first time so they Mm. could transport the fresh strawberries outside of british columbia to other places there was also The use of sugar to preserve the strawberry jam. First there was strawberries themselves didn't last that long but then they could be made into jams but then those didn't last that long and then there was the element of adding sugar into the strawberry jam so you could make jams and you could send it along as well as you could send fresh strawberries. One of the cooperatives ended up gambling on sending a boat of strawberry jam to England. It was a huge gamble. The agreement was that they would spec the product in England and if it was deemed satisfactory, then they would agree to pay them and so they had to front all this money But it ended up actually being a huge success for the cooperative and starting a bit of a mini demand for strawberries and strawberry jam in England from British Columbia.
0: This idea of having the cooperative also with the equipment and the techniques, the methods that they had for growing them and finding different varieties. Like there's lots of different strawberry varieties that lend themselves to different characteristics. There were certain
1: varieties of strawberries that would produce a week earlier so that they would get a higher price for it. So then there were people that would try and grow these strawberries and try and get them out to market really quickly before the other varieties of strawberries Mm. that took another week or two to Mm. mature. Mm.
0: Are you a strawberry fan yourself? I actually do not like strawberries very much at all. You do not like them? Well, (laughs) I think that there's quite a range. It seems to me that the strawberries that come from further away, are grown more for their durability than for their taste. I tend to go for local strawberries for that reason, knowing that the local ones are more likely to be sweeter, like they're, they're more selected for their taste. One of the other interesting
1: components of the question how did they farm was in 1927, a farmer's handbook was published by or written by Sumatsu Wakabayashi, who was a graduate of the University of Washington, I believe, so Washington state. And he traveled around and lectured to Japanese Canadian farms and went and looked at some of the techniques that Japanese Canadian farmers were using. He produced a book that provided information on how to farm, advice on fertilizer, when to rotate different crops and so sometimes you grow this for a year and then you grow a different crop for a year and what's the best way to rotate those properly. Information about soil as well as other types of farming that Japanese Canadians were involved in such as animal sexing. I think so it's producing the chickens, in particular.
0: Yeah. The thing is, when the chicks are young, it's not obvious whether they're males or females. So you want to be able to get rid of the males so you don't waste feed on them. And uh, apparently this was a technique that was developed in Japan. And so Japanese Canadians practically had a monopoly on chick sexing. A lot of these strawberry farmers had poultry as well. And they were able to have this side business or, or additional business. It could be a big part of it of being able to tell whether you have male or female chicks oh. and then that increases obviously the productivity of your egg output because you don't have all these males running around eating yeah. your feed that are you know they're not of use. so it, it was quite a big thing in in that time frame as well around the 20s
1: that would make sense because poultry in particular and dealing with sexing chickens was a large part of the farmer's manual
0: yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> a larger maybe than I guess would have factored into other farmers' manuals.
0: The other thing I, I thought was interesting was how the Nokai, and this seemed to be true in other industries where they had cooperatives, that it wasn't just about the economics, is that they would build a hall for community events. Yeah. And you were mentioning before about the importance of having. English kindergarten so their kids would be able to go into mainstream school but at the same time they seem to be concerned about maintaining their Japanese cultural yeah. values so that they had a Japanese school and they would have possibly Buddhist ceremonies taking place in these halls, mm-hmm. judo clubs, yeah. things like that to maintain this this uh, cultural component yeah. to the organization, the community.
1: Haney no kai had a social club that was really involved and they had a women's group and a couple of other things that were part of that association I think that Mitch had mentioned that especially some Japanese Canadian women during that time ended up feeling a little bit isolated and lonely and so the women's groups in particular that would spring up around the Farmers associations were really important.
0: So I I think that was quite an interesting window into that whole lifestyle and in my own case I didn't really know so much about strawberry farming even though my grandparents had been into it. Now I can imagine my grandmother, who was very, she was four foot seven or something, and she would often mention, well, for my dad and I think one of my aunts, she would talk about uh, which ones were born during the strawberry season, and I can understand why she would be so conscious of that if she had to be out in the field while she was pregnant, that you'd remember (laughs) when that kid was born because of that double jeopardy involved
1: thank you to all of us who are listening to our podcast and we'll see you again at the next podcast